think we take this occasion to issue a warm welcome to all of our visitors as well as our regular attenders and members here this morning. Let's pray together. Our Father, we just heard solemn words read in our ears as we considered the 18th chapter of Matthew this morning about stumbling blocks and about forgiveness and about our responsibility to our brothers and sisters. We pray with, with uh, earnestness this morning that you would hear us as these solemn things sober our hearts. We pray that we would be those who come to your word this morning. Give us help to chase away every distraction of things left undone last week, things awaiting this week. Help us to focus our attention upon the great issues of eternity this hour. Help me as a preacher, help all of us as hearers to say to Christ, Lord, speak to me this hour. Leave me not as you found me. Work grace into my heart. Lord, if I don't know you, open my eyes to see your kingdom. Enable me to come to you and to believe upon you. But if I already am a Christian, Lord, help me to hear your voice. Things old, things new, cause me to hear them with fresh power. But Lord, I don't want to leave this place in the same way that I came. Conform me more. I pray to your precious image. Help us all. We pray to, to bow before you in this hour and say, what would thou have me to do? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. How we answer <clears throat> fundamental questions about God says much about our spiritual condition before the Lord. In fact, how we answer such questions as who is Jesus and what is his authority exposes more about us than it does about him. Many who seek Jesus come to him out of idle curiosity. And of these, some may claim to be interested in him, but never become his disciples. Others who at first openly refuse Christ's call to come to him, later repent of their sins and become his faithful followers. I ask you this morning, to which group do you belong this morning? Are you an idol seeker? of Jesus Christ? Or are you a committed follower of the Lord Jesus? Please turn in your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 21. Continuing our study of Jesus' parables. And that brings us this morning to the 21st chapter of Matthew. I don't have time to read the chapter before us, 
but it is an eventful chapter in the life of our Savior. In the first 11 verses, we read of his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He's come to Jerusalem at last to lay down his life for his people. And then in verses 12 through 17, we see his cleansing of the temple the second time coming in the name of God to drive out all of the false worship and all the merchandising that has been made of the place of prayer. And then we see his cursing of the fig tree in verses 18 through 22. And then verses 23 through 27, we see questions asked and counter questions Jesus gives about his authority. The religious leaders have some questions they want answered. And then in verses 28 through 32, we have Jesus' follow-up parable of the two sons. And then this chapter concludes with his parable of the wicked tenants that would not have Christ to rule over them and its impact upon his hearers. Jesus' parable of the two sons in Matthew chapter 21 follows immediately upon his interaction with religious leaders who question him about his authority. And in his, in his parable of the two sons, our Lord contrasts the response of the tax gatherers and sinners with that of the religious Jews to his command to enter the kingdom and to follow him. Let me read those verses once more, verses 23 through 32. And when he had come into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? And Jesus answered and said to them, I will ask you one thing too, which if you tell me, I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John was from what source? From heaven or from men? And they began reasoning among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, then why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the multitude, for they all hold John to be a prophet. And answering Jesus, they said, we do not know. He also said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. But what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in the vineyard. And he answered and said, I will, sir. And he did not go. 
And he came to the second and said the same thing. But he answered and said, I will not, yet afterward regretted it and went. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the latter. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you that the tax gatherers and harlots will get into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax gatherers and harlots did believe him. And you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterward so as to believe him. Well, this morning we're going to consider this parable in three headings. We are, as we've done in the past, we're going to consider the parable's backstory because often Jesus' parables were given in light of historical events that immediately preceded the giving of the parable. And we're going to look at the parable's backstory. And the parable's backstory is our Lord's recent triumphal entry into Jerusalem and then his cleansing of the temple, which elicited the religious leaders' questions about his authority. And then we're going to look at the parables telling very briefly, consider its figures explained, and then we will consider the parables message. What does it have to say to us? So consider with me then the parables backstory, and that is our Lord's recent triumphal entry and temple cleansing, which elicited this question from the religious leaders about his authority. They question him first about the nature of his authority. What kind of authority do you profess to have? And then the source of his authority. Who gave you this authority? So did they question Jesus' claim to prophetic authority? We see in Matthew 21 and verse 11, and the multitudes were saying upon Jesus' triumphal entry, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. You see, the conclusion of the ordinary folk, many that were, were crying Hosanna, would later cry crucify, but they recognized Jesus for who he was. He was one who spoke not with the authority of the scribes and the Pharisees. He spoke with original authority. This is the conclusion of the crowd. Did they question Jesus' claim to messianic authority? Is he the promised one that John was pointing forward to? Well, we read in verse 15 of this chapter. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done, and the children who were crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David. See, they recognize him as the promised Messiah. Did they cry that? No, it says they became indignant. They said to Jesus, quiet your disciples. They have no reason to be saying these things, but uh, they were to learn that yes, they did. Did they question Jesus' claim to divine authority? Well, you remember early in the Gospel of John, speaking on behalf of the Jewish council, 
A man named Nicodemus went to see Jesus under the cover of darkness. And he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So they weren't even stating what they knew to be true just by witnessing what Jesus had done, that he possessed divine authority, that he had come from God. Now understand, brethren, that these religious leaders, by virtue of their authority as the shepherds of Israel, had every right to question Jesus about his authority. But it they came to him with an unbelieving, critical spirit. They really didn't want to know the answer to this question. So they came with a sneering question about his authority. You see, the fact is that their minds had already been made up. When our minds are made up, no amount of evidence is going to change our minds unless God should open our eyes. Their questions to Jesus, you see, were really a ruse to mask their unbelief and their murderous intentions. Soon, unbelief and envy would drive them to deliver Jesus over to death. Now consider, as we look at the backstory here, Jesus' shrewd answer. Jesus responded to, to these unbelieving leaders with a question of his own. And understand that he wasn't attempting to dodge their questions, no. His question forced his examiners to face their rejection of him against clear evidence to his messianic credentials. He was the one to whom John pointed as the Messiah. He was the Lamb of God. He was the expected one. That's how Jesus referred to himself when John was entertaining doubts about his identity when he was in prison. See, they witnessed his miracles. These miracles say that you have come from God. They witnessed his miracles, but they couldn't deny them. But who did they attribute them to? They attributed Jesus' miracles to the power of the devil. They'd heard his teaching and yet dismissed it because it didn't square with their faulty theology and their unrealistic expectations of what Messiah would look like. He wasn't riding in on a white charger to put down the Roman authorities. That's the kind of Messiah they were looking for, a political Messiah, not a spiritual Messiah. They beheld his attraction, the attraction to the crowds, but yet they regarded them as his stupid followers. These people don't know the law. We know what to look for. They don't. They're easily impressed. We're not. So Jesus appealed to the ministry of John the Baptist to answer their questions about his authority. John's powerful message had made a great impression upon the nation of Israel. They were all coming out to hear him. They were going down to the Jordan River and repenting of their sins. They were being baptized. You see, the ordinary folk could see in John what escaped the notice of these leaders. They recognized him to be a true prophet and that his ministry was from heaven. 
his holy life, his powerful preaching, his baptism of repentance, and then his untimely death only deepened the conviction of these people that John was indeed a prophet sent from God. And after the first flush of interest, these leaders sought John's baptism, but he rejected them as hypocrites and wouldn't permit them to enter the waters of the Jordan to be baptized because they hadn't experience a change of heart. These questioners rejected John's ministry and consequently they rejected Jesus as the Messiah and the Lamb of God to whom he pointed. And consider next the religious rulers' conundrum and their non-committal answer. Jesus asked about the baptism of John. Was it from heaven or from men? And these religious leaders' interrogation of Jesus backfired in their face. Instead of embarrassing and discrediting Jesus by their attempt to expose him as a fraud, Jesus turned the tables and he throws them on the horns of a dilemma with a question that exposed their deception and their unbelief. Brethren, we learn a lesson here. We behold in these religious leaders the spiritually deadening effect of unbelief. The longer we continue in unbelief, the less likely we are to believe. And especially if that unbelief rejects the clear testimony of Jesus' divine identity. The longer we reject, the less we are likely to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus may be saying to some here in this room, with all of this clear testimony to my divine identity, why do you not believe in me? These unbelieving religious leaders would have regarded themselves, if we might borrow an expression common today, they would have regarded themselves as spiritual people. They believe themselves to be in tune with God. And yet, like many who regard themselves as spiritual today, they were willfully blind, refusing to believe in Jesus. Indeed, the only truly spiritual people from the teaching of the word of God is those who possess the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to see the kingdom of God, and he gives us the graces of faith and repentance to turn from our sin and to believe upon him. Now, they were of a spirit of, of sorts, but it wasn't the spirit of God. In fact, they scoured their Bibles seeking eternal life and yet refused to embrace the life-giving Messiah that God had placed right before their very eyes. Jesus, in another place, exposed their unbelief in him and in the scriptures that pointed to him. John 5, verses 39 and 40. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is these, the scriptures, that bear witness of me. They testify of me. And you are unwilling to come to me that you may have eternal life. And then we consider Jesus' arresting question that introduces his parable. But what do you think? 
show them their willful blindness and rejecting John's witness, Jesus tells these unbelieving leaders a story that exposes their profession of extraordinary reverence for God and their zeal in his service to be nothing more than a sham. In fact, he judges them out of their own mouths. And so that brings us to the parable. Consider first the parable's telling before we come to the parable's message. The meaning of Jesus' parable is straightforward. In fact, our Lord first presents the parable, and so there's no, no room for doubting what he means. He interprets his message. Notice, first of all, the Father and his command. The Father. The Father likely represents the Lord Jesus Christ. Some commentators think he represents God the Father. But our Lord was the one to whom John had pointed. It is Jesus who calls sinners to himself and sends them to labor in his kingdom. And consider the Father's command. The Father's command to the first son and then to the second refers to Jesus' indiscriminate call to all sorts of people to enter the kingdom of God. Tax gatherers and harlots and religious people and everyone in between. And more widely, these two groups represent all those who hear the gospel to come to Christ and to serve him. So that's the father and his command. Next, the vineyard. What does a vineyard mean? Well, the vineyard, as we noted, it represents God's kingdom, the church of Jesus Christ, the sphere of God's gracious rule in this world. The father's call to work in the vineyard refers to Christ's call to men to embrace him by faith and then to serve him in his church. Work in the vineyard likely refers to serving Christ in the kingdom, in his church. This service would include, of course, obeying the gospel command and all of the commands of God and submitting to his will as it's revealed in his word. This service would include, furthermore, the use of spiritual gifts that God has given for the building up of his body in love, as well as laboring to extend God's kingdom in this world. And that the father commands his sons to work not tomorrow, but to work today, emphasizes the importance of immediately entering the kingdom of God and of serving Christ while there is yet time. The two sons, there are two of them. Notice first the rude but afterwards obedient son. The first son represents tax gatherers and sinners, scandalous and irreligious persons, people who live to serve their lusts rather than to serve God. Many such people attended upon Jesus' ministry. They came to him. They were curious about this rabbi that didn't hold himself aloof, who showed favoritism to no one, who spoke kindly to all, sharing meals with and treating such persons as themselves with dignity, unlike the religious leaders who treated them as a scum of the earth. And then there was the polite but decidedly disobedient son. I'll go, but didn't. The second son, of course, represents 
religious leaders, moral, self-righteous persons who profess godliness, but who yet hold Christ at arm's length, refusing to embrace his message of salvation, trusting that they were right with God because of their religion and their outward privileges, thinking themselves above repentance since they regarded themselves as already inside the kingdom of God. You know, both of those two groups may be represented even in this room today. And notice, fourthly, the son's different responses to their father's command. Both sons at, at first disobey their father's command. One politely pretended to obey him, but didn't. And the other rudely refused, but later obeyed. And by their refusal of the gospel command to come to Jesus, our Lord implies the doctrine of universal depravity. Read the first three chapters of the book of Romans. We are all by nature rebel sinners against God, whether we are morally degraded or whether we are religiously devoted, none of us seeks after God. None of us is righteous. There is no fear of God before our eyes. That's what we are by way of nature. We are no more inclined to obey God's gospel than we are to obey his law. In fact, we have God's law written upon our hearts and we disobey it. We have God's gospel coming into our ears and we say, I won't have any part of it. Notice that the son who rudely disobeyed his father experienced a change of heart later and obeys him. He proves himself better than his original promise. I won't, but he did. Many tax gatherers and harlots and other social riffraff who first refused Jesus' invitation to enter the kingdom of God later repented of their folly and entrusted their hearts and lives to him. He was a magnet to such who saw themselves as desperately in need of God's saving grace. But not so the polite but decidedly disobedient son. He promises better than he proves Agreeing to his father's command with his lips. He disobeys him in his heart and with his feet. And so are the outwardly religious and other hypocrites. They promise well. Their actions seem to say, I will, sir. They may have the name of Jesus upon their lips, but they do not worship him in their hearts. Jesus speaks about this. You say with your lips, that you worship God, but you say with your lives far otherwise. They don't follow him either with their feet. They, you see, they have a form of religion to use the language of scripture without its power, professing to serve God while actually living to serve themselves. And that's what we are by nature. So let us consider then the parable's abiding message in the time that remains. I have five concluding words of application. First of all, not all who profess obedience to Christ truly serve Christ. 
we learn that many professing Christians' religious service is only formal and it's not from the heart. They're just going through the motions. That's what we are by nature. We want to please God by what we bring him in the way of our religious service. You see, we may have a name on our lips that we are alive, but really be dead. See, for such people, Christianity is all talk. They promise to follow Christ, but their promise is a sham and they feel no shame. They think that all is right with them and God. Perhaps you've heard people say that, you know, God and and I, we're, we're on good terms. Now understand that Jesus condemns no person who promises to follow him when his promise is sincere and earnest. What our Lord condemns is promising to serve him while really living to serve self. Remember Jesus' parable of the soils, of the stony ground and the thorny ground here. They profess profess some kind of faith in Christ, but they died on the vine. He warns us against shouldering the plow and later looking back. He urges us to remember Lot's wife. Yeah, she followed her husband out of town, but her heart was really back in Sodom. Many professing disciples later turned away from Jesus and followed him no more. We read about this in the sixth chapter of John. Jesus warns us against self-deception. Not all who claim to answer his call truly come to him and continually follow him. On the last day, Jesus will say to not a few, but to many professing Christians, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You see, proof of the genuineness of our profession is not in religious words, but in righteous deeds. So Jesus would ask a group hearing him one day, And why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Secondly, delayed obedience in answering Christ's call is still disobedience. You may be here and you say, well, I'm going to come to Christ sometime. I've just got, you know, things to do, places to go, people to see, and I will get around to this Christianity business Later on, when it's more convenient, and it hasn't become convenient yet, but you think that there will be a convenient time. Rather, delayed obedience, yes, is better than pretended obedience, but Jesus doesn't praise the one son for delaying his obedience. Delayed obedience is still disobedience. Better would it have been for him to have immediately turned from his sin to Christ and begun serving him at once. 
Brethren, we learn a lesson here. The longer you delay obeying the gospel, the more painful regrets you will accumulate. Many of us heard the gospel over the years and we didn't come to Christ. I will, but we, we didn't. God had to strong arm us by his grace and put our feet on the kingdom of God, make us willing in the day of his power. But we have a whole memory full of things we would like to forget because we didn't come to him when he was first offered to us in the gospel. Don't put off repentance for another day. A day may never come. How tragically true it is for many who hear but do not respond in faith to Christ's call that he who hesitates is lost. Thirdly, a self-righteous person's spiritual condition is worse than that of a scandalous sinner. So well, how can that be? Well, there's more hope for a self-conscious sinner than for one who is self-righteous. He at least knows he's wrong with God. He doesn't think he's right with God. Few Pharisaic people came to Christ. Jesus says, I've come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. It's not the whole that need a physician, but it's those that are sick that know they are. Now, how do you know if you have a self-righteous, a Pharisaic spirit? Well, we already noted this earlier, that you think yourself better. You might not come right out and say it, but you think this in your heart of hearts. You think yourself better than others, and as a result, you look down on them. And that's what we are all by nature. We want to stand on the shoulders of people we deem less holy than ourselves. Secondly, you trust in your religious performances to make you right with God. Well, I have been baptized. I've been confirmed in the church. I'm a regular attendant at the services of the church. And they are your Christ, not Christ. You trust in them. Furthermore, you place observance of man-made rules and regulations before obedience to God's law. You trust in your obedience to your list of rules. I do this and I do that. And I don't do this and I don't do that. Therefore, I must be accepted by God. Self-conscious sinners are convinced from the gospel that they can't save themselves. Self-conscious sinners are closer to the kingdom of God than those who feel no need of God's mercy in Christ. I'm all right, thank you. Oh yeah, I, I'm a sinner, but I, I'm, I'm working at it. I'm working at your sin. Your self-righteousness is working at your sin. Let me warn you, Jesus will not make you well simply because you know that you are sick. If you feel conviction of sin, don't, don't remain convicted in sin. Run to Christ. You must come to him. You see, sick people are never made well by staying away from the doctor. 
We can play all kinds of denial games. I'm really healthy when you have a tumor and you know that you got a problem and you don't go to the doctor. Jesus heals only those who desperately seek his saving mercy. We see an evidence of this in the 18th chapter of Luke's gospel. There was a, a Pharisee, proud, and a publican. One acknowledged his so-called righteousness before God. I do this, that, and the other, and I don't do this, and I don't do that, and I'm certainly not like this publican over there. I can lift my head up and look at you. He can't even lift his head up. He's looking at the floor. And as I listen to him, he's confessing all of these things. I know that these are all true and probably many more. And the publican over there, probably if he heard the Pharisee, he'd say, you don't know the half of my sins. But he cried out to God. He beat on his breast and he said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. We can come to church and say, God, be merciful to him, the sinner. But this man said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. The Pharisee didn't have that trust in God. He had trust in himself. And we read that the publican, when he left the temple, he went home justified. The Pharisee, he just went home in his sins. Jesus' religious audience understood Jesus' parable because they gave a right answer to his closing question. Who did the will of the Father? They knew which one. But they didn't see themselves in the parable. And we often don't ourselves. We see other people in the parable. We see ourselves maybe on the sidelines. You see, they refused to enter the kingdom of God because they still regarded themselves as good people who didn't need a savior. They need one, but not me. Fourthly, those who receive undeserved mercy from Christ demonstrate radical repentance from sin. True repentance, a true change of mind. Like that young man who later did the will of God. Like these publicans and, and harlots, their lives were marvelously changed. It was black and white, the difference between their old life and their new. You see, true repentance is radical. Saving grace changes lives. It begins in the heart with a hatred of sin and leads to a profound change, an observable change in life. And it begins in the heart and it works outward. Ezekiel 36, 31 and 32. We looked at this text at the men's meeting last week. What happens when God gets a hold of us with saving grace? Then you will remember your evil ways. You gave them a pass before. You just winked at them. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. And you will loathe yourselves in your own sight. Your self-esteem won't go up, it'll go down. You will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. I'm not doing this for your sake, declares the Lord God. Let it be known to you, be ashamed and confounded for your ways 
O house of Israel. If we go to church always wanting to go away feeling good about ourselves, we really don't go to church wanting to hear from God. You see, repentance will not allow you to make peace with the sins that ruined you and crucified your Savior. You'll be pained at the thought of continuing in those things that agonized your Lord. You can't think lightly of those things anymore. You're not going to say, oh, we'll continue in sin that grace may increase. May it never be. How shall you who died to sin still live any longer in it? You'll practice painful self mortification of your sin. You'll cut off offending right hands and gouge out offending right eyes. You'd rather go into heaven maimed than to be healthy and whole in this world. Fifthly, finally, you do not have the luxury of remaining non-committal towards Christ. I'm sorry. The big question Jesus asked, what think ye of Christ? His coming into the world separates men. We can't remain non-committed. We're either going to commit ourselves to our sin and our autonomy, or we're going to consider, or we're going to commit ourselves to our Savior and His Lordship. There's no middle road here. Jesus teaches in this parable that not to decide for Him is to decide against Him. Not to turn from your sin is a decision to remain in your sin. Not to come to Christ is a decision to stay out of the kingdom of God. One man has said, delay is just another form of denial. What did the father say? Son, go work today in the vineyard. The road to hell has been well said to be paved with good intentions. It's always going to be tomorrow, tomorrow tomorrow, but that day never comes. Delaying in coming to Christ may well forecast your eternal destruction. How many wasted yesterdays lie behind you? You know not how many tomorrows are before you. You have just today and you might not even have the whole day. You have now. You have only today. Repentance is for today. Coming to Christ is our duty today. Entering the kingdom of God is for today. Serving Christ is for today. Not tomorrow, not later. The writer to the Hebrews makes this pointedly clear. Hebrews 3 Verse 7, therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me as in the day of trial in the wilderness. Verse 13, 
but encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today, lest any of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Brethren, we don't have futures on tomorrow. We don't. You know, we look back and we look a long ways. And we look ahead and we think we have an unbroken string of tomorrows, just like we had all those yesterdays. Oh, we don't know that. <coughs> he who hesitates is lost. Turn from your sin and come to Christ right now. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Let's pray. We pray, our Father, that you would take these things. You would soften our hearts. You would make us receptive Lord, if there are any here who don't know Christ, who have tomorrow on their lips instead of today, oh, how we pray that you would open their eyes to see that they are to come to Christ today, not wait for a tomorrow that may well never come or a string of todays in which the heart becomes harder and harder and harder until they've sinned away the day of grace. Oh Lord, show mercy. Let us not procrastinate our way into hell, but let us believe and be brought into the kingdom of God today. Lord, hear our prayer. Make these truths we've considered alive unto us and leave us not the way we came, but that we might live our lives henceforth in light of the truth that Jesus Christ has come to save sinners today. Amen. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.